countdown to the last comic shop in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And that is why Batman will always prefer stuffing over potatoes. Any objections? Okay, then. Moving on. Now it's time to rank all the X-Men teams by which one had the best hairdos. And... Yeah, I think the fact that he wouldn't budge an inch on that OMAC issue was insane. I mean, that wasn't even a key. Yeah, it was OMAC. I mean, who is out there clamoring for issues of OMAC in 2020? What, what year is this? <laughs> Ed, Andy, oh, thank God you're back. Hey, how's the shopping holding up there, J.A.? Are you okay? Yeah, what is that smell? Is that the same Conan the Barbarian shirt you were wearing when we left? Yeah, and uh, that pizza over there isn't supposed to look like that either. Unless you're trying to uh, discover some new antibiotic or something? You guys don't know what it's like. Nobody came to the shop since you guys go to those comic cons. Not Mikey, not Ethan, not George. I even had a sign promising free chocolate egg creams with every comic book purchase, and still nobody came. Did, did you mention that they didn't have eggs in them? Well, what does that matter? Well, I mean, come on. I, I can't tell you how many times I resorted Atlantis attacks. Tell me at least you have some interviews I can listen to. Now, I'm curious. Are you going by title or are you going by the storyline? <laughs> It's all right, though. Okay. But I know you've been going crazy. So, you know what? I think we have some past interviews we got from the Hershey Comic Con that we went to this past summer on the Archive Rama 3000. How about I'll fire those up and we'll listen to that? Not that piece of junk. It can't even make a decent cheese pizza anymore. <laughs> well, that's your problem. It's not made to make cheese pizzas, it's supposed to play interviews. <laughs> Why don't we go downstairs and, and I'll fire up some of these interviews and we'll listen to them, right? We interviewed Roy Thomas there for Pete's sake. Maybe it just needs a bit of WD-40. Rubbish! It's just temperamental! See, look! Hey, fired on perfectly fine for me. I don't know what your problem is. Any case, uh, so the first interview I have for everybody uh, on today's program is an interview we did with Joe Stat, a fantastic comic book artist, which for you, J.A., is a real treat because I think he drew the issue of Silver Surfer that made you a Silver Surfer fan, right? Yes, uh, Volume 3, Issue 14. Yeah, was only one of three issues of Silver Surfer that he actually drew, but he drew so much other great stuff, and we're going to hear all about that on this interview from Hershey Comic Con with Joe Staten. <laughs> hey, this is, we're back here at the last comic shop, and we're talking with Joe Staten. And uh, Joe, I, I've been a fan of your work for so, so long, and uh, you're a marvelous, marvelous artist. And uh, Oftentimes in the last comic shop, I always like to talk about how folks get involved in the comic book industry, but I always like to start off by asking, were you a comic book fan growing up? Is that why you wanted to do comic books, I guess? Oh, oh yeah. I, I, best I can tell, I have always been a comics fan. There's, there's a, a family story, which I repeat a lot, that I was found when I was three years old. I was found in the kitchen, try, on the floor, trying to trace Dick Tracy out of the comic strips. <laughs> so... 
my, my ambition to draw comics goes back at least that far. Wow. And that seems to be a common thread among a lot of artists that I've talked to is like the notion when they were younger of, of tracing. So other than Dick Tracy, did you trace anybody else back in the day to kind of get a, a sense of your style? Uh, well, I, I traced the Phantom a lot. Okay. Uh, and uh, Little Abner. I, lo- I loved Al Cap. Oh, so, yes. Was that Bob Lubbers or was he drawing at the time or was it? Uh, uh, it may have been Frazetta. Yeah. Okay. And, and Pogo, I was I was very big on Pogo. So do you do you happen to remember your first comic book? Like you know, you talked about strips, but do you, do you remember getting a, a comic book or one of your first comic books you ever got? Uh, it, it it's kind of impossible to say which which ones would have been my my very first uh, right. comic. But I, I know that when I was still pretty young, I was following Dell Comics, especially the westerns. Uh, and Alberto Giolitti, I found out later, was drawing a lot of those westerns, uh, Wells Fargo and, and Paladin and that sort of thing. But I, I think I actually learned to read. My my father would have me reading through uh, Superboy. Okay. So I, I very much remember early, early issues of Superboy. Uh, can't say it's the first, but uh, it goes back a ways. So that was what, uh, Otto, Otto Bender? Was, I think he was he doing it? And, uh, and John, C- John Cicala, Okay, I, I think, was doing the ones that I remember. Okay, sounds yeah. good. Well, eventually, you wanted to take that uh, kind of love of comics and comic strips and drawing, uh, and you wanted to, I, I guess, make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, I guess, brought you from just being a fan of i guess comics to saying you know what i might want to draw uh, comics or, or was it one of those things where it's just like i need to make a living and so <laughs> to do it. But I, some people it's like no i want to draw comics i guess so what, what what's your story from that well i i think at some point i uh, julie schwartz had uh letter columns it is is comics uh, jla and such right. like and uh, uh, reading those, uh, the the answers, I, re- I realized somebody was answering things. There were people in there and actually making the books. Right. So, and um, I came along at a time there was a lot of activity in fanzines. Okay. Uh, science fiction and comics. And I, right. I did a lot of drawing for those when I was uh, still in school and um teenager and such like so i got accustomed to drawing for publication uh, okay. with, with even e- even if the printing wasn't so elaborate for uh mimeographs and that sort of thing right but that was the first experience of uh drawing for for publication to, or drawing to demand uh, when i when i came along there there weren't schools for comics and right. there weren't it wasn't the access you have now but um, I study art in college and right. and I, I felt like I would have given up if I didn't make a shot at <laughs> at, uh, at at getting into comics getting one where it was fall, fallback position I was going to be uh, either a uh, newspaper reporter or an art history professor okay so those those were my options <laughs> and which would have been fine which would have uh, been fine but I've done it but you know, I would, we would have all missed I, out on uh, wonderful years <laughs> of these wonderful drawings, but I'm kind of glad you didn't go that route. But yeah. uh, I was, I was always uh, wondering when I talk to sometimes with artists. Um, oftentimes, artists talk about a 
almost like serving under apprenticeships when they would get places because they would always have somebody that was working in the industry before them where they would learn certain things like maybe they were good at at drawing almost like pinup things but like using the white space using the page to tell a story mm. did you have any mentors when you first broke into the industry or p- folks that had been doing it for a while that like kind of took you under their wing and kind of showed you the ropes of how to work within comics and the medium well i i guess my my real connection to comics was when i was still in and doing science fiction fanzines okay uh danny atkins was one of one of uh, wally wood's main assistants yes uh was connected to the science fiction stuff so mm-hmm. I would hit him up with questions about you know what's what's really going on and what should I, what should I be prepared for and, right and he was he was he was very helpful when I got into comics I worked for a while as Gil Kane's assistant okay. so I ha- had a similar approach to breaking a page down that Gil did right so we we meshed that way so I, I guess those would be my my basic how, uh, how was working for Gil I mean Gil's uh, an interesting character from some of the stories I hear and now you can say as much or as little as you want but how were the years working as Gil Kane's assistant actually I think I worked for him a little over a year okay. so it wasn't that long and uh, for the uh, true insight you'll have to speak to Howard Jacob. I'm sure I'm sure he'll be glad to break it down for you. But uh, I I had a great time with with Gil trying to 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 mesh with with Gil's art. Right. So the thing was I was basically breaking the pages down so that he could just take them and and finish the uh, figures a bit. And I, I, there are some of Gil's uh, comics that straight my stuff so right. he, you know he turned him in we were fine and uh, you know Gil still owes me money you know <laughs> I, I, it's just it's amazing you're talking about Gil King you're talking about Dan Atkins we just talked with uh, P. Craig Russell and he's actually oh. Dan, Dan got him into the industry as well because oh, cool. Dan had opened up a, a studio in, in Ohio and, and mm. he was one of the folks that he brought into the show. So it's interesting that you also have that connection to Dan Atkins. So, yeah, um, and I, I was just at another show. I was talk, talking to Steranko, who was uh, came in through uh, connections to Dan. So there's, there's, there's a whole, you know, under, underground Dan Atkins uh, network that, that most people aren't really. But, but with Gil, I... I, I did Spider-Man and Ghost uh, Ghost Rider okay. and uh, even a Conan and uh, which had uh, the, the way I laid it down there wasn't a lot of de- detail and Gil told me uh, don't worry about it it's going to the Philippines it'll come back with detail so uh, <laughs> was that a what Alfredo Alcala was he was he it, working on that or no it may very well have been him because I'm yeah. just, he's the first Filipino person yeah. that I think of that. Yeah. I was working on Conan so hot because yeah. he did a lot of the inks for um, what John Buscema and stuff mm, like that. Yeah. But, uh, I want to quickly pivot to your to your work on E-Man because ah. eventually later on like decided to come and do your own creator project and stuff. So tell me the story about E-Man. For those folks that may not know mm. about E-Man, uh, for the younger fans out there, how did you get involved with that project? My first break into comics was at Charlton Comics, okay. and, and uh, actually on my on my uh, honeymoon, I, I, <laughs> I, I stop. My my wife insists that I make this a key part of my origin story. 
um, we uh, we were broken and taking a very quick uh, honeymoon to uh, Mystic, Connecticut, and between between Brooklyn where we were and and Connecticut, so um, it was uh, Derby, Connecticut, the home okay. of Charlton Comics. I just happened to break my uh, portfolio log, and we stopped in at, at Charlton on the way, mm-hmm. and uh, I got work. Okay. So, so they didn't pay well. They were the bottom of the barrel. True, but, but uh, you were you were. Do you? What was the first book that you did at Charlton? Because I, I, you did a, a lot, so that's why I was just curious. I, I did a lot. There is some question. I, I'm not. I generally credit an issue of Ghost Manor. Okay. But it's possible that the first thing I actually did was a three-page romance. I think they may have given me that. Okay. And. Uh, they decided I didn't have the uh, uh, finesse for romance, but oh. I but I was just fine for something a little rougher like horror. Okay. So uh, it so, was it was one of those. All right. Uh, yeah. So you're working at Charlton, and eventually, I mean, that's where E Man came out at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess what's the story of like how you work, went from just doing whatever they would sign you, and now you're like you're on E Man. Like how how did that all come about? That. Uh, came about when uh, Sal Gentelli was the editor when I hired on and uh, uh, George Wildman was his assistant but when Sal retired and, and George became the main editor he, he needed an assistant so he hired Nicola Cuddy who, okay. and here we got the connections again uh, Nick was uh, one of the assistants for Wally Wood okay okay it's, it's all Dan Atkins Wally Wood I mean this everything <laughs> everything comes out it of that it seems like it yeah it's like these puzzle pieces I'm fitting together and comes out of that, to... that vortex yes um, so Nick had learned to write comics and to draw comics working for Wally Wood okay and uh, while he was editing at uh that Charlton, he was right. also writing a lot of uh, of horror horror stories, but his his horror was uh, very humane. Uh, okay, uh, there was always something sweet about it, and um, we hit it off very well. You know, was a, a similar uh, approach to things, and Nick convinced Charlton that he should be allowed to go ahead with a character he had called E Man. And since I had worked very well with with Nick, he called me up, told me his ideas for E-Man, and I I convinced him to uh, change the origin a little bit. Okay. And uh, from then we we were on, and uh, it, it it worked out very well. On E-Man, did you did he write full scripts, or was it more of a Marvel method, or like well, how did how did you guys work together? Like it was the way he learned at the foot of Hollywood. Okay. Which is you take a blank piece of paper, you draw uh, six boxes on it, and you put little stick figures in it okay. with, with captions. And that was uh, that was the way we worked. Okay, so he would give you that as your as your template for what you were supposed to do, and then you just went from there. It worked it works as as well as as any other way. <laughs> and I guess that's the one question: is um, as an artist, uh, when you're working on things, do you prefer to have a little more of that? I guess creative input where you get more of like a. How do, we, how do I say it? Uh, 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 more of a blank canvas to work with that they give you like some, or would you rather have things kind of more scripted out, I guess? I, I don't know. It, it strictly depends on the, pro- on the project and uh, on the writer. I 
I'm generally annoyed by writers who want to talk everything out. Okay. Uh, but I, I like to have enough that I know what I'm expected to do. Okay. And, and sometimes that can be Marvel method. Sometimes it, I once had a script from Marty Pasco that was 100 pages of type script for a 20-page comic. You know, so, <laughs> but... And, what did you do with that? <laughs> did you give it back to him and say, like, no, this this isn't going to work for... <laughs> I, I drew it. Oh, you drew it. All right, <laughs> so, never mind then. And, and on the other hand, I, I once had um, a Plastic Man script from Len Wein. Okay. Which is probably a 10-page story. But it was like three three paragraphs he wrote on a napkin at lunch. So, oh. so that's... that's you, you so could, you've run the gamut from you a, could, nap, a cocktail yeah. napkin to a... Right. I still can't get over like that many page for a 22-page yeah. Story. Oh man, what is what was he writing? War and Peace. It, it was it was one uh, when, when E Man came back at first comics. Marty was was the writer there, right? And and it, it was his uh, his first E Man script. It okay. was it was amazing. It was it was it was very screwed. it was very dense. Yes, right. It was dense. Yes. So I don't want to take up too much of your time today, sir. But I the last question I had for you is, if you were to say like what your proudest accomplishment is in in the field of comics whether it was a particular issue or run or Mine something is curious too is there work because you've run the gamut in comics you've worked on superheroes on licensed books you've been doing uh you do classics illustrated i have that christmas carol version now you're working on dick tracy's uh strips is there a, a work that you've done that you feel like, oh, I don't know if it got the attention it deserved. It really, uh, do you think should uh, see more light? Yeah. Mm. Well, act- actually, I, I did uh, some Legends of the Dark Knight with, that were um, inked by an, a uh, Argentinian inker, Horacio Atalini. Okay. Which is, um, looks like, like storyboards for a pulp magazine oh. uh, it, it's 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 beautiful work and i'm really proud of it and what Horacio did made it you know even nicer so much nicer okay. uh, i'm really proud proud of that i'm i'm proud of a batman book of opposing landmines right. that, that bill sankevichink really pleased with that and i'm pleased really pleased with my uh, my christmas carol my, yes, my I, christmas uh, carol is very wonderful. yeah so I, I guess there are like four or five things that I'm, I'm really pleased with. So okay. I think I think I have actual credits for something like 1,500 comics. So so five out of that I I could I could uh, point to with pride. Okay. I, my last question is whether or not there were any particular writers or inkers or folks in the comic book industry that you felt you really gelled with. Like these were the people that like. If there was a dream team, I, I would always mm. want to be this person being inking my work or this person writing my my stuff. What was your what was your what was your most mm. pleasant experience like that? I guess um, again, it's hard to pick no, just one, one but uh, figure like five or so. Well, certainly with Nick on yes. on E Man. Yes, I loved working with Steve Englehart on Green Lantern. Uh, he always surprised me with what we're doing. I okay. don't know. Uh, <laughs> Alan Brenner and and Paul Levitz on the Earth Two stuff okay. uh, when, when Huntress and we did the romance with Batman and Catwoman. Yes. I I really seemed like I understood that. Or oh, and I always want to throw in that I think Charles Dickens is one of the best comics writers I ever collaborated <laughs> with. 
Yes, from the Christmas Carol. Yes, yes no, I you saw. You would be remiss in leaving out Charles Dickens. Yes. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joe, for taking some time to talk with us at the last comic shop. Make sure that you're checking out any of the wonderful comic books that he just mentioned. I'm going to be trying to find those issues of Legends of the Dark Knight because, honestly, I, I, that was one that went flew under my radar. So I'm going to... But uh, thank you so much for just taking a few moments with us, and we hope that you continue drawing for, for many years to come. Okay, and be sure to check in with Howard Jenkins. Well, that was a great interview with Joe Statton. I noticed that you didn't mention any, any Silver Surfer, though, so maybe not such a great interview. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I anyway, going to you even mention about the Kilowog. I should have said something about the Green Lantern work. Anyways, we are going to take a commercial break and when we come back we've got another interview from the sweetest place on earth hey it's mikey wood frequent last comic shop guest and collector and as a collector i'm always in need of boards bags long boxes and more to house all those comics that's why i use promo code lcspod to get 10 percent off my orders at bcwsupplies.com not only does it get me a discount on bcw's already low prices but i know using lcspod at checkout is another way i can show my support to the last comic shop podcast in their continuing mission to bring fans together under that big comic book tent so if you're in need of comic book supplies Head out to bcwsupplies.com and use promo code LCSPOD today. That's LCSPOD. You know what I think? This world we're in right now is the fairy tale. And what's really real is on the other side. Ramsey, mechanic by day, aspiring comic book creator by night, went into the woods and tripped. He was bombarded by bizarre and mysterious glyphs that he drew into his sketch pad and onto the body of his muse, Regina. Oh, Groovy! Your art is crawling all over me. Shit. What is going on with you? What's going on with you? All of a sudden, you're a complete drip, baby. Maybe you need another limb to the head! Ah! Bloom, written and created by Ted Sikora, with art by Butch Mappa. How are you feeling, Ram Man? You've never experienced a story so astonishing, so far out and away from the beaten path. Where in the Am I? Blast off Blast with Blue, the origin, the origin of a prophet. Order yours at HeroTomorrow.com. Hey, we are here joined today with Scott Hanna, one of the most prolific inkers of all time. Yes, <laughs> yes. And you know how we love to talk with inkers and pencilers and writers on the last comic shop. And one of the questions we always like to ask them before we talk about their work is how they got into comics, right? I'm sure that you were a comic book fan growing up, or at least remembered maybe the first comic book that really grabbed your attention. As a kid, what was that comic book? Do you remember? Uh, well, the, the first superhero comic I remember, because when I was very little, my parents wouldn't let me buy superheroes. It was like uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost and Richie Rich and, okay. and uh, uh, Donald Duck, things like that, right? I think I was 10 years old about when I finally like got my first superhero book. And as a kid, you have a very limited supply of funds. Right. So I was like, okay, 
what book has the most superheroes in it that I can fit? So it was a Justice League of America was my first superhero comic book because it had Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the whole, the Flash, all of them were in the same book. Was it an 80-page or 100-pager? No, it was, right? it was, okay. I couldn't even afford those. Those, okay. were, those were like a whole dollar or something at the time. You know? <laughs> I'm old, so I've been that's, at this for a while. I, I, I'm just curious. Do you remember like the issue number at all? I'm or? horrible at remembering issue numbers, oh, okay. uh, but uh, I remember what the cover looked like. Even though eventually it got torn off because I read it so much. Okay, well, what did the cover uh, look like? Do you remember? It was actually uh, I think it was like a big hand holding a box, and the heroes were all in the box. <laughs> it was it was some weird cosmic thing, but I loved actually the a lot of the early stories they had the justice league teaming up with the justice society yes so that even here. more heroes you know so i was like wow double the amount of heroes in here this is great you know so as a kid i loved the avengers and the justice league because and then i started getting down to like my two favorites which were spider-man and batman okay so but i had to work my way up to those guys right well speaking of working your way through comic books the, the next question i always have is like again started off as a comic book fan but it's one at one point you wanted to decide you wanted to actually do comics right i mean so where did how did you make that leap from well, fan to well like, weirdly enough or? even though i grew up drawing and reading comics i never thought it was a real job okay so when i went to art school i actually went i majored in illustration i thought i was going to do like book cover paintings and album covers and i did some of that but when i got out of school and i was doing some of that kind of just normal illustration work it was like this is work you know it wasn't it wasn't you, you go to art school thinking you're going to have a fun job and when it starts being too much work it's not fun you know and doing book covers is not the same as doing comic book covers because you know books can be interesting or not you know whatever and it's still just a lot of work for just one image so after trying other forms of illustration for a while i got back into comics and actually some friend of mine from school said, hey, Scott, we know an, a comic book inker who actually needs an assistant. And so I actually worked for him for about six months because even though I'd gone through four years of art college, nobody ever told me how to draw comics, okay. right? They, and they didn't even tell me how to do sequential storytelling. They just told you how to do a picture, right? So I had to learn the specifics about comics and I grew up with them, so I knew about them. Sure. After working with him, I actually got recognized by a small independent publisher that did black and white comics. They hired me to pencil and ink a okay. uh, monthly title. I found out that I was good at it and they actually paid me for it. Um, <laughs> and nice. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And uh, so when I first started working in comics, I was like, okay, it's fun now. As long as it stays fun, I'll keep working in comics. When it stops being fun, I'll do other forms of illustration. Right. 37 years later, I'm still drawing comics. So <laughs> that means I'm still literally having fun with it. You brought up an interesting point about kind of learning the business. And, and, and so we talk to artists all the time and a lot of them like have like mentors and it's almost like an apprenticeship, somebody that shows them ropes, especially artists. Cause again, they talk about it being like a blank slate, like a clean page and it's like, how do you tell the story within those those boxes? How do you make it flow from one panel to the next? Did you have any mentors in that regard, either you know, Not, in those early days? I, unfortunately, no. I uh, um, My mother's a fine artist, so I learned how to paint and draw when I was quite young, okay. but I drew traditionally and painted in oils and stuff. Basically, all my process of storytelling was learning from reading 
comics for years and studying them, watching movies like crazy. Okay. I, I'm, I, I study movie making and I have for the past like 50 years or whatever. And then once I got into the business, because I, I chose to focus more on inking instead of penciling, I learned from the masters because I got to work with John Romita Jr. I got to work with John Byrne. I got to work with the great writers. And I learned so much more of how to tell a good story from working with those people. So my mentors were my professional partners. Right. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was trained by Will Eisner. I was like, no, I just got to work with John Romita Sr. and Jr. You know, it's okay. like I got to, you know, so all those guys and after working for decades with some of the very best storytellers in the business, unless I'm a total idiot, it's going to sink into my brain. And <laughs> one of the cool things working with partners is I try to learn all the good things, but I also learn what not to do. So okay, if I work right. with a bad partner, I'm like, OK, what are they doing wrong? Why is it wrong? Why is it not working? So I'm a very analytical artist. So I really study and I pay attention. And I've had many artists where like, OK, I don't like the results. I'm going to avoid doing those mistakes. Okay. I like these results. I'm going to learn how to replicate those those things. And that's how you get better. And my philosophy in art is that until I die, I want to keep improving. And you do wonderful work. Now, most recently, uh, yeah. we've been seeing your work on Amazing Spider-Man with John Romita Jr. Correct. I love John Romita Jr. He has a very certain flavor. What yeah. are some things about working with John Romita Jr. that you do to help accentuate his work and bring out the best well, in what, somebody his so, caliber? So one of the things I love, John was trained by his father. And in the early days of comics... We didn't have super tight pencilers where nowadays a lot of pencilers are like, I'm going to put every single mark and scritch and line in there and the inker just has to trace exactly what I did. And that's not really how it's supposed to work. The, originally, the pencil concentrated on the storytelling and the inkers, uh, like Stan Lee called us embellishers right. because the inker's job was to finish the artwork and, right. and complete it and make it print worthy. And because John was trained by his father, he's, he's not as loose as his dad was. He definitely gives me a lot of information, but he expects his art partner to further it. So uh, I love when he does a lot of like gray tones and he'll just do kind of the side of the pencil, right? Okay. And he'll just fill it in gray. And an inker will get that as like, wait, does that mean it's supposed to be black? Is it supposed to be gray? Is it so what kind of gray? And then he'll do some black marks on top of that. It's like, wait, wait, is that a black on a gray or is that a white on a black? It's like, and and I, when I first started working with John, I was like, John, what do you mean by it? He's like, oh, it's up to you. I'm like, I'm like, oh, cool. I get to make these decisions and not get yelled at or anything, you know? And especially over the years, John and I have gotten to really trust each other. We know. Uh, what we're doing but he we just did uh literally yesterday i was working on this gorgeous double page splash he has of like all these heroes on a rooftop looking down over this big battle scene thing and john did this really nice underlighting and this like these bricks and you know building structures behind them and again he kind of did them all dark and i'm like and it's supposed to be a night scene it's like so okay i could just do this as black or I could do this as grays. And if I'm doing as grays, what value of grays and what technique of grays. So I started doing like 
crosshatching in some areas and white spatter on black in other areas. And, and it turned out great, but it was all because he gave me all the starting information I needed, but he lets me run with it and participate. Absolutely. So, so John's one of the, the, the best partners I've had because he doesn't call me as anchor. He calls me his art partner. And that's how I look at him is he's my partner in the end result is really a total collaboration between both of us. That, is that your preferred method of working? Like, would you rather have a, a penciler that kind of gives you a little more freedom to kind of put your own personal stamp on be, Yeah, because I'm a very solid artist myself. I know how to color. I know how to draw. I know how to pencil. So the more opportunity I have to use my strengths, the better. So yes, I am technically an excellent, just straight up inker that I can do really, really precise, tight, super clean pencil work and translate it to inks. But I love doing what's called finishes where I get a rough pencil drawing. I get to decide where the shadows go, where the blacks go, where the textures go. That's my most fun part because it's really using much more of my drawing skill right. as well as my inking skill. Absolutely. And that's almost like you, you would prefer almost like, like layouts almost. Yeah, we absolutely. I've worked many times with just getting, I, sometimes I get like, okay, there's a circle here. That's Batman. There's a circle here. That's Robin. And then I get to fill in, the whole costume and and if i didn't have the script i would have no clue what was going on uh that doesn't happen often but when i get that it's no problem because i just do my thing you have professionals like you and the artists that you're working with those collaborations oftentimes can bring out the best and in that, all involved and right one of the reasons i i when i chose to become specialized in inking I didn't want to make myself the star. My job is to make the penciler look as good as they can possibly look. So if I do that properly, I might get some attention, but my job is to make them look good. And I use all my skills not to flatter myself, but to flatter them. Okay. It's, it's an underappreciated under profession it for is, sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many times when people folks will be like, oh, I, I love that book because of so-and-so's pencils. And you don't realize that it's the inker. But, but yours is yeah. the last line that the audience is going to see exactly. in the final product. Well, the ink work is what gets printed. The pencil work gets erased. Right. You know, so I one of my jobs is to fix mistakes, fix anatomy, because that's what gets printed. You right. know, we got to make sure it looks finessed all the way to get to that printed page. Now, I wanted to ask you about the process of inking. It is becoming an endangered art at some well, point with some of the digital. Well, the the good and the bad thing is that digital has made inking much, much easier for the layman. Okay. So in reality, it literally takes years of practice to master like a brush and a quill pen. Okay. Absolutely. To get it to, to act properly. And it's not, it's just the mechanics of controlling your hand and eye to make the tools do what you want. And, and that doesn't, and that doesn't count even count the knowledge exactly. of what you're doing with those tools. So to be a traditional inker, uh, literally takes years of mastery. Digital, you can always have an undo button or an erase button. You can actually move things. So a lot of people have gotten much, um, they, they get similar results without nearly as much effort or skill involved. But unfortunately, in my mind, that makes a lot of artists lazy because I've worked in every medium, right? I, I'm a painter, I'm a penciler, I'm an inker, and I consider inking the hardest because traditional inking, you have to make every stroke perfect. Yeah, you're okay? with every, 
Every, right, exactly. You're working on a tightrope without a net. So I, I never liked white out or clean. I was like, you got to get it right the first time. Got to have total control. Every mark has to mean something and be there for a reason. Nowadays with digital, they're, they're working with a neck all the time. Right. And it's like, oh, I can just bounce back. I can re- undo that. I can move that over. I can clean that up or whatever. And it usually actually makes it take twice as long <laughs> because they're not doing it right the first time. You know, if you got to redo it 10 times, you just lost 20 minutes, you know? And like we were so, saying earlier, you have that collaborative process with the artists that right. you're working with. And, you know, the, the more people you have working on it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the more people and, clean it up and make well, it great. And, and one, one of the other difficulties, like... Part of the partnership of art is actually one of the benefits. Making the collaboration makes every person stronger. Exactly. When a lot of artists, because of digital, they're like, oh, I can ink myself. But generally what they do is they magnify their own flaws. So they don't they don't have somebody to fix them or improve it or to tweak it in a way to make it better. They're actually just magnifying all their own weaknesses. And they're like, why does it look worse when I ink it? It's like... You're not working with another partner as a different insight. It's not so much one person's vision, to your point. Like when you have a, a, a penciler do all the pencils and then do the inks, it's that, that one solid vision. So you don't get like the chance for there to be uh, a little bit of conflict. Yeah, and not that well, that can't well, be good. But right, but so a, lot of, a lot of times that interaction actually improves the product. Because right. like, like I said, my goal is to make the pencilers work better hopefully the colorist is going to make my black and white work better and each of us together comes up with a magic that not no one of us can do all by ourselves or we could but it would take months or whatever i i liken it to a rock band like you can have the best musician in the world who can write and sing and play every instrument but it's not the same as when they get the right guitarist and the right drummer and the right lyricist and they get them all together this magic happens that that excels beyond their solo work frequently and that's kind of the way it works in comics very now i was curious too you have had a long and varied career (laughs) it's harder to name a character that you haven't inked right more so than one that you have do you have any work that you've done that you feel like didn't get the attention or seems like it slipped under the radar you like that you really hope that people would give it a well, second look. um okay so one of the the guests at this show is roy thomas right. and i worked with him a few times in my career this is an undersung comic issue i did it was actually uh the black knight and roy thomas right. created the character of the black knight or at least the the more modern version right. of the character and this was actually we were doing the medieval black knight and then at one of the splash pages we had all the different incarnations of the character but i grew up loving like robin hood and and king arthur and all that stuff so doing a superhero set in king arthur's court with merlin and the the original black knight and stuff and i was doing it with tom grummet and i was doing again the finishes thing where i was just going to town with it and making it look like hal foster from prince valley and stuff and it turned out spectacularly like every page is just a gem and nobody really noticed it you know but i think i think actually roy wanted to uh he actually got one of the original pages because he loved it so much but yeah most fans were just like okay it was like a black knight story who cares but for me i was like 
it was a gorgeous issue. It just turned out so beautifully well. And Tom Grummet, who's the penciler, and I both consider that one of our favorite jobs together of all the times we worked together. That it was called uh, Major Arcana Black Knight, and it was part of a miniseries, but it was just a one issue, and okay. it just turned out spectacularly well. Yeah, I, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it, so I'm going to yeah. have to go and dig that up. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, we appreciate your time so much. Before we go, I have one last question, just that. You've been working on Spider-Man books continuously uh, with very few breaks in between. Do you have a particular Spider-Man story or run that stands out for well, you? As so, so far, I mean, I have been working on the character for 30 years this year. By far, my favorite run was when I was working with uh, J. Michael Straczynski as the writer and John okay. Romero Jr. as the penciler on Amazing. And of that run, um, the most special issue by far is... Uh, what we call the black issue of Amazing Spider-Man 36 because it dealt with a real world event and I lived in New York for many years John grew up in New York so it was a very very personal issue it was uh, dealing with a real tragedy that we all knew and shared in and so if to me, and John Romero Jr. said the same thing, that that is the most important issue either of us has ever done in our careers. And you guys put that out in record time, too. We, we actually, the Straczynski wrote the entire script in like a weekend. And John and I literally, I think we did the pencils and inks in something like a 30-day period. And it was out because we didn't want it to be out three months after the right, event, you right. know. So we, we jumped ahead and, and did it as soon as we, and, but we really poured our heart and soul into it. If you look at the detail in oh, it, it's it just shows. insane. We were looking at reference all over the place. We were seeing, you know, and, and we were almost like crying while we were doing it because we were like, oh, these people die. You know, yeah. this is, this is real. This isn't made of comic book wreckage. Right? This is real wreckage, you no, know? And that's, um, that's a super powerful issue. And like, right. as, as a Spider-Man guy, you see that in every you know retrospective you know you see the, the double yeah. page spreads and yeah. that's work that's yeah. going to live forever and you know you guys just did such a wonderful job with such a sensitive topic right so and we wanted to treat it with respect not take advantage of it uh, or anything right. like that right it didn't that. feel yeah. exploitive right yeah. So, well, yeah. thank you so much for your time today, Scott. Uh, I mean, again, uh, where can folks find you like nowadays? Like, if you're a new comic book fan, you're going out to a local comic book shop. What are you working on? Well, I, I'm currently working on Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, okay. That's that's my main gig. I'm also working on the Spider-Man India miniseries, okay. which the first issue just came out a couple weeks ago. I'm doing a couple of what if stories for Marvel. I did a really cool Loki story written by Walter Simonson about like the fall of Asgard and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm actually just got assigned a new project through Marvel, which is a what if tomb of Dracula story. Oh, wow. uh, and I love the classics like Dracula. So, uh, and I'm, I just did a Venomverse story so far this year. I haven't worked on DC yet, but I usually work for both companies. And I'm also doing a cool project, which is a kid in a comic, uh, which is a newspaper, like a Sunday supplement newspaper that can be found in comic book stores or online. And I have a creator-owned uh, comic strip in there called Dodge and Hustle that I co-write pencil and ink. Wow. And that's actually coming out, I think, seven times a year. And it's absolutely gorgeous. If you ever have an opportunity to pick it up at a local comic book shop, I would highly recommend it. It, it, it kind of reminds me of that Wednesday comic series. That, that exactly, they, yeah. Uh, the the DC put out several uh, years ago. And I, yeah. I just I love that idea. Like, man, 
those that that is originality in a comic book shop. I love it. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us on the last comic shop. Thank Make you. Make sure that you're checking out all of Scott's wonderful work throughout the years. He is so prolific that I'm sure that if you go through any box <laughs> anywhere, you'll find there, at least there, there, there's a running five. joke that if you've read comics in the past 34 year, 35 years, you have to have a lot of books in, of mine in your collection. You pretty much is almost unavoidable. I, I think uh, so far I've done over 23,000 pages of interior artwork My for Marvel and DC. Goodness. So, and I'm still working. So, so, <laughs> well, keep up right. the great work, right. sir. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Many, many years to come. Thank you right. so much for being on the last comic all right. Well, that was talking with Scott Hanna, and we'll be right back with more of The Last Comic Shop with our final interview of the day right after these commercial breaks. It's Mikey Wood chatting with his good pal, Howard Chaikin. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. Brian Thomas here from the former The Batman vs. James Bond show and the upcoming The Night Cave show. Do you like noir, black and white, gritty murder mysteries? Do you like crime stories or even pulp comics? then you're going to love Nick Palatichuk's debut graphic novel entitled The Greenway. It's 1968, and Butch Schultz, a black market merchant, finds that his friend has been murdered in a mansion in St. Paul. Now he is out looking for who did it, while the city's best detectives are on the case. Nick's graphic novel is already getting rave reviews, let me tell you. Zero Supervision Comics Podcast says, A dark, intriguing story that makes you want to know more. The Glenn Thinks Stuff Podcast says, It's explosive, captivating, and alluring. And actor Kyle Hester from The Chair, Zombie with a Shotgun, and Preacher Six says, can't wait for this book. You got to get on this. Order your copy today at Indie Planet, A New World of Comics. That's www.indieplanet.com. Hard copies and digital copies are available, and now digital copies are only $5. That's where I said it, just $5. So make sure you order yours today. And so before this next one starts, we need to let you guys know that our pal Mikey Wood not only is is he an awesome individual, he is also the mayor of any comic con we go to. <laughs> you take Mikey to a con, he is making friends left and right with the hotel staff, with the bartenders. It, honestly, everywhere he goes, Mikey is making friends, and nowhere has that paid off more than his relationship with industry legend Howard Chaikin. Sure, you can go and listen to other interviews with Howard Chaikin where he will talk about his illustrious career and uh, his disdain for Star Wars. Not this one. I mean, you get a little bit of that in this one. But uh, here you get Mikey and Howard Chaikin in an interview that uh, is unlike any other. Uh, And spoiler alert, uh, there might be some show tunes involved. Uh, we're talking amongst old friends here. Anyway, hey, it's it's Mikey Wood from the Last Comic Shop talking again uh, with Mr. Howard Chaikin here at Hershey Comic Con. It's I believe 2023. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your your prior your prior work in the 70s, and then uh, between that and American Flag, there seems to be a, a stylistic leap. Well, let's face it. In the 1970s, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was learning. I was trying to figure out an approach because I had no point of view. Well, I, I think about it. I had a point of view, but I had none of the skill set to express that point of view. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and I, I didn't understand that there was a a, a a language to the work that I was doing that, I, that was outside of my grasp of understanding. One of the things that I did when I left comics in the early, in, in the in, in late late seventies, early eighties to work elsewhere was I figured out that there was this language that I just was study. I, I woodshedded, 
and and I figured out that there was a a way for me to synergize the textual ambitions I had with the visual ambitions that I had, and what what that ultimately boiled down to was learning how to show and tell at the same time, to find text and imagery that work together as opposed to one supporting the other, that they were a synergistic unit, and that's really what what became my main goal professionally from the time I was 32 on until this day. So we're talking 40 years of work committed to that idea. And with and with Flag, your letterer had a lot to do oh, absolutely. With, with that. Now, was he part of the equation from the beginning, or was that someone you stumbled no, onto? No, okay. um, what, anecdotally, I'd, know, I'd known Ken since the early 70s. Mm-hmm. We were, he, he was an assistant to Storanko, and I was part of the, uh, the, the Neil Adams posse. And we didn't like each other very much. And um, when I was in, in the early 80s, when I committed to do Flag, I was up at Marvel, and I was really, I was, who, who can I get to do this? I had no, I'd never hired anybody. And Joe Duffy recommended that I talk to Brusenak, who just shown them his samples, and I knew Ken. I called him up, and for some reason, which I, to this day, we clicked in a way that is transcendent. We were ex- on exactly the same page, and his ambitions were realized in this. And, he, and from that point on, the, the book, the, the, again, the, use that word again, the synergy that existed between the two of us in this book was, was what sold the book. It also confounded people because it did not look like what people were expecting a comic book to look like, so that you ha- the comic book audience tends to, to like material that doesn't really change but acts like it does, but returns home later on with a cup for, a, for a hot cup of cocoa and a cookie. <laughs> And that's just horseshit. Yeah. Um, and the so what what ultimately develops in in my relationship with Ken is that Ken goes on to get other work. Mm-hmm. People hire Ken on the basis of the work that he's done for me, but none of them seem to have the balls or understanding of what he's doing for me to get him to do anything other than conventional lettering for them. Mm-hmm. And that when when he works with me, he has a level of freedom that is obviously liberating for him. Anecdotally, when we did the Divided States of Hysteria in 2017, I gave him a note on the script that that was, there was a phrase that was extended in culture, that internet chatter. I said, I need to find a way to convey the concept of internet chatter. What I was expecting was a button along the lines of an inset button comparable to the the go-gang alarms that were in flag. Okay. What I got instead was a graphic me- melange of gibberish and symbology that ran through all the pages that really enhanced the experience in a deep and profound way. And, and it's just like, what the f***? Is it- this, is, this is the joy of working with Ken Bruzen. Yeah, that's, that's- and, and, and I'm going to say something about him that he knows full well. He's a raging pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> But the, I mean seriously. I'm, I'm, I mean I'm a pain in the ass, but but I'm really charming about it. That's you know, right. Ken Ken is just like, what? How did you say that? You know, but, but, but you know, sometimes you got to work with pains in the asses. Oh no, we, they, they look, deal with me. You know, I'm, look, I mean I'm. I mean Ken Ken knows he has he has he has work as long as I'm still alive. He's got work. And I had for you is like when it comes to creative conflict. Was there anybody that you just man you butted heads with? With man, so out of that came like no, Matt, really? No, I I win fights. Wherever I go, <laughs> I'm just curious. I don't lose you fights. See, no, I don't, I don't you lose seem fights. Like I, the type, but like I don't lose fights. No, if I have a problem with someone, I win. Okay. Undefeated 
in the Because I, because I have no problem with walking away. Okay. Don't mention Ironwood or whatever. Or whatever. Just, <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no. I mean, it, it, it's not a joke. I'm quite serious. I don't have. I, I don't believe in that in that that turmoil create, creating excellence. No, I believe in peace. Okay. Um, I mean, my editor, the guy who edits my stuff, edits my stuff because when I went to work at Image at twelve. Um, there was I, had, I discovered to my shock there was no editorial oversight in the image. There's no one there to, to, to feedback, to, to, to respond to, to material. So I, I, I hired a guy whose day job is you know far more important than mine than the work he does does with me. Right. And every idea he has costs me time and money. But every but I would say 98 percent of those ideas are valid and, and, and should be enacted. I respect this guy enormously. He knows it. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and the reason he's there is anecdotally, okay? When we, when we committed to do the third volume of Hey Kids Comics, I mapped it out. I, work, I, I start with a map, always, okay? okay. Right, I'm working on, on my next project right now, and it's in, it's in that stage right now. I sent him the six-issue map, and he said, I'm, I'm front-loading too much old material. I need to address more contemporary. And I said, okay, here's what you do. Take a, ra- a whack at my map. Come back to me with what you think it should be. Get a word, Doc. Okay. okay. And again, and the map consists of you know, a, a single sentence per, per page. Okay, right. so it's 28, 24, 24, 24, 28. That's our breakdown. Six of those. And what I got back read perfectly. And an indication of how good it was that I wasn't aware of losing anything that I had in my first movie. Cool. That's beautiful. So now, now, flag being what it was, was it was it immediately rec- recognized as a sort of groundbreaking book no, at the time, no, or did flag it take was, some flag time? Was not a commercial to... success. Right, right. It simply sold better than anything sells today. Yeah. But by, in those days, it had no. It, I mean, I had no commercial impact whatsoever. The impact that flag had was on the guys who were reading the book who became the talent pool the next decade and the next decade after that. Right. Um, the audience didn't read the book. The, I mean, the, the problem is the comic book audiences are, are are have been infantilized by the comic code to so profound a degree that what you've got. It's now 50 and 60 year old men who are disappointed by not being entertained by material that they've been waiting to see since they were 12. And, and, and they're wondering why at 60 they don't think they're, they're not having the same enthusiastic reaction, or if they, do, they are, they should be questioning their own taste, uh, to work that, that, that made them love this material when they were children. The audience for comic books has been, has been inoculated to, to accept certain structural realities. They are more interested in super dragons, mutant science, space, monster bullshit. Than they are in, in and, and and they like pinups. They like they like sedu- I mean they, they love Dave, Dave Stevens, who I is a perfectly slick artist, who is a completely uninteresting comic book artist to me. Um, they, they, they they wax they, they, they wax rhapsodic over, over rendering and, and have no interest in, in in stories that are actually about potential possibilities. Um, so the audience was, was I mean one of the reasons why it's one of the three books of that year: the Dark Knight and Watchmen. And Watchmen, as transgressive as it was, still dressed itself in the language and visual imagery of a superhero comic book. And, and Dark Knight is a is, a, is a, an ideologically incoherent take on, on trying to convince you that that Batman is both... It, it has it both ways. It's, a, it's, the, it's, it's a Trump voter who, who voted for Obama last year. Yeah, yeah, it's that, yeah. it's that kind of ideological incoherence. It's fascism for beginners. But, but, it's a, but it's about... It's a grown man's interpretation of his own 12-year-old fantasies, which is the archetype of the comic book marketplace in the first place. Flag was about something... Entire, radically different. It looked different. It was difficult to read. It didn't make it easy for you. And frankly, I didn't give a shit. I'd like to have been more successful commercially and financially, but I recognize, in, in, in retrospect, that was not available to me. Well, some of the way you portrayed 
the media or, or, or things in flags. Actually, it's coming to pass now. I, I imagine some of that, some of those talking. You know, does that does that surprise you at all? Do you feel prophetic? Yeah, yeah. Or or or, or Do I look surprised? No, no, no. But like, I mean, look, look. Let, let, because you, what, I'm going to say something you're not going to like. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Being the smartest man in the room in the comic book business is a really low f***ing bar. <laughs> It's true. No, no, no. I, I, I appreciate that because it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing because if you read that from '83, and it's and it's it's happening now, it's like you could easily look at it at, at, at it being as prophetic. But, but, but that, 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 that's a false narrative. But, right, right. I mean, I mean all, flag is all all those elements of, of the flag material is are based on on elements of culture and society that were present and available and, and identifiable in its time. They may have been nascent. They may have been incumbent, but they were there. You know, in the same way, look, you know, there's a there's a media in, encouraged war between the generations of the of, of my generation, the, the the generation X and millennials, and it's completely generated by media. And what what I find most fascinating about it is what, what I I realize is that. That Generation X and Millennials are are mocking of my generation for our ineptitude with, with with technology, without ever acknowledging that that technology was waiting for them when they when they poured out of the womb, as opposed to invented on the way out of the out of the canal. Right, right. You know, and and that this this technology was waiting for them when they got here, by, made by men of, and women of my age, and the the profit, the commodifying of generational warfare, is a profound value to media, but it serves no one in any, in any real way. It, it seemed to me that, I mean, I wasn't being prophetic. I wanted to do a, a book that was that was dystopic, but funny, that reflected my, my, my own standards and sensibilities at the time. At 30, and when I did it when I was 32, I was f***able, I liked fucking. Uh, I was attractive, I liked underwear, you know, I was I was obsessed with fashion, I was a real fashionist, fashionist and a clothes horse. And, and it was just, and that, that, that was the icing on the cake of a dystopic narrative. Um, and I mean, all the things I got right, I got plenty wrong too, you know, but, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I wanted to do an entertainment that, that required some attention. And the problem is that the comic book audience is only willing to pay attention to stuff that, that supports and panders to their, their, primary, their primary belief system. I've said it more than once, the, stru- the structural narrative format, the, 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 arm- the armature, the, the, the structural template of American comic books is Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an, an, an endless, an endless pursuit with no closure, with the implication of change and adjustment, which is, which is personified by Batman gaining and losing a, cir- a yellow circle around his, around his image, <laughs> or an emblem, or, su- or Spider-Man wearing a red or a black suit. That, that, right, right. Exactly. That's the, that's the extent of, the, of, yeah. of, of actual character development and adjustment. So, and, well, it's funny you, you mentioned, and this sounds like this is a bizarre segue, but I, I had to mention. I like a bizarre segue. Good, good. So you're uh, in the midst of almost finished with the third and final mm-hmm. volume of Hey Kids Comics. Yes. And pastiche, I would say, of you is very present in this, you in think? this volume. Yeah, you think so. And the sailor pants are phenomenal. Those uh, pants. <laughs> those pants. <laughs> Were Australian Navy pants, mm-hmm. which you could buy. They, they were they were they were wool tweed, the wool twill. They were warm as shit. 
with, with 12 buttons. Yeah. They weren't American Navy pants. Okay. Because the American Navy pants came up here, they had eight buttons. These were 12s. They were, they were, they were literally just under the rib cage, mm. and they, they were they were a great blocker for, for you. They, 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 <laughs> they, 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 they kept you packed. They, they kept the package in place, and they were a, a heavy wool, and they were great for New York winters. Mm. That's, and they were they were and they weren't flared. They they were like they were like 1920s box pants. They dropped. Okay. So they're, they're, well, you know, navy pants are made a certain way. This is you could cut this out, but they're made a certain way so that you could use them as flotation devices. It's true. You could you could ball up the the you know. But anyway, so the, the, these were made to, to kill Komodo dragons. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so now my question with you being with with, with a version of, of Howard, uh, the character's it, name is Noah no, Gitlin. Now with him being a, a present thing, does this lean more? Because you, you said from the beginning, the last time we spoke to you, that these stories are fictional but actually happened. Well, like, no, what I say was a lot of this didn't happen but it's still all true. But it's still all true. Is this, does this lean closer to, is it it's closer to the thing or no, is it the it's same? No, okay. no more, no less. I was I just mean, wondering it, if I it, mean, it, it I mean, um, there are conversations that are verbatim mm-hmm. but they're also always subjective because I'm writing them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's been that way from word one. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the, the, we're planning back matter for the trade that make make Cleve a little closer to home. Okay, excellent. That's exciting. That's ex- for the tra- the trade of three. Well, there That's are exciting. there were two Noah Gitlin sequences in the second trade, yeah. which bo- both of which are are based on absolutely true incidents. Uh, if you haven't mm. seen them, they're, they're worth knowing about. You, have you read them? I have the floppies. So they're not. Oh, you the have. Floppies. Oh, oh, they're not the oh. floppies. No, well, we in, the in in the first of them, I do. In 1981 or 82, I was at an inkpot banquet in San Diego with my then wife, and Bob Kane was at the table. <laughs> oh God! All right. And my wife, who was a a sly and very funny woman, this is my second wife, uh, was over his shoulder and looked at me from behind him and, and did. Who the f- is this guy? <laughs> um, you know, lip syncing it very, very overtly, and it cracked me up, and I started writing. And then, about six years ago, I was in New York City. I was doing a Mike, Mike Carbonara shows, and I was at the uh, the Penn Central, the Hotel Maurice for Pimps, uh, the Penn Central Hotel, and um, this is a branch of that hotel, by the way. And um, the um, and we, we'd gone to the theater, and we ran into Sarango as we were heading to our room, and my wife and Sarango were about the same. And right at the same time, Sarang is facing me and my wife's behind him. My wife goes, who the f- is this guy? <laughs> and that was the inspiration for this 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 four-page piece. He's going to be in Pittsburgh in a few months if Lucky you want to visit. Yeah. Lucky girl. <laughs> Slice your throat with his shoulder pads. They're so sharp. I have one question about Hey Kids Comics, just because I always love the book just because I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, and I consider... This book, the comic book equivalent of Desolation Row, where you gave wow, everybody, you gave everybody the different names and changed their faces. But I always thought like the coolest thing about doing that would be like how 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 did you decide what other people would look like? Like you knew who they were in real life, or you you were kind of combining them. But like how did you give them like well like there's a character that's he's Gil Kane, but like right. well how did you decide that's what this version of Gil Kane was going to look in, in, the, in the same. It's kind of like when I used to go to shows years ago, when I first started getting on the road again, um, and I'd find myself at a table with colleagues I didn't particularly know, but whose work I knew, but I didn't know them personally, I would often say, so who's going to play you in the movie? Okay. 
Okay. Great. And that gives me a sense of how people think of themselves. All right. And and, and I'm serious. Uh, and and I, 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 I thought about this book as if I were casting a movie about these people. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and, and Gil... You know, Gil had a. Uh, Gil looked like an anti-Semitic movie poster you know, <laughs> as, as a young man, and um, and he transformed himself. And that transformation, I, I just read Paul Kupperberg posted a couple of pages of Alan Kupperberg's work. Alan was was a failed comic book artist who whose best work was screamingly hostile takes on his colleagues, like career-burning shit. Right. And um, and he didn't know how to he didn't know how to stop. You know, and it was just really good work. Um, and he talks about the um, you know the cruelty that was enacted on Gil after he had the nerve to attempt to rise above his station. Okay. You know, because comic book artists and writers embrace the idea of themselves as, as like soulless fa- failures. You know, that, that, that bitterness inculcates. I mean, years ago, I did. There's a thing in, in, the, in the third volume, which I, I different char- characterization, different cast, but it happened. I was at Marvel, and I was utterly in awe of Gray Morrow. Um, I care to not be in awe, but I, you know, a phenomenal draftsman. But I was in awe of his work, and I ran into Mike Esposito, um, who was, who was the, an incredibly bitter man. Um, oh, yeah. Well, you know, look, he and, he and Andrew had, had really serious ambitions in the early 50s. Right. Their, their imitation, their knockoff of Mad was the best of a bunch. Yeah. They should have been working for Kurtzman. They were that good. I mean, their writing wasn't as good, of course, but they were, they were competitive with anybody Kurtzman had in the stable. They would have been great for war books with them. They would have been great for Mad. Okay? And, he, and they just recently surfaced the covers of the romance. They did two issues of a romance comic book with the covers that are absolutely gorgeous. An entirely different way of thinking about romance books. Just amazing looking stuff. So Mike was a pretty bitter guy. And I and, and we were talking about Graymar was walking through the office and I asked Mike whether he was a fan. And Mike looked at me with such contempt, such disdain, and he said the word fan with enough syllables in it as that, you know, what the f- are you thinking? You know? It was it was just really it was it was drenched with bitterness. Well, yeah, we talked about, um, on Facebook, you and I talked briefly about how one of your uh, characters is Gladys Parker, like physically Gladys Parker. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, but, but also, but, but incorporates and, elements of Patricia Highsmith, yeah. of Flo Steinberg, of Tarpe Mills. Now, w- w- were these all, did you have personal interactions with these folks at all? Or, I mean, you would have well, been some of young. Them. Yeah, some of them, yeah. You know, I, mean, they're, but, they're, I, mean, I mean, for example, um, I don't want to give anything away. No, 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 don't give anything away. Don't, don't. Screw I mean, it. I, I mean, don't need to I mean, know. The character of, of Alfred Kessler yeah. is a conflation of, you know, of, of, of two major players in comics. Yeah. Uh, the front story of one and the back story of another. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, Ted Whitman is is, is, a, is, is obviously Matt Baker, and, and there's also Augusta, I forget his name, um, and, 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 and a, bit of, a bit of Billy Graham. And also, you know, a lot, just all the other cross-ethnic guys. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, his, his, you, you do his frustration so well just the way he's like people say shit and he's just kind of like Quiet, yeah, that that quiet frustration. Because, well, you know, he's, he's the smartest man in the room and the most self-aware. And you, well, I, you know? I, mean, I mean, Matt Baker was was black and gay, I believe, do, I think, do, I mean, doing doing Miss Fury. And well, I, I, well, I, well, I, he's yeah. a Phantom Lady. Phantom Lady. Yeah, I'm well, sure, I, I, sure. I just uh, uh, Larry Stroman just posted a, a piece on Facebook that he couldn't find any comic stuff, and I sent it to where he could find some. You know, I mean, uh, Joe Procopio 
and Lost Art Press uh, just published published last year or two uh, the Canteen Cake stuff by Matt Baker. And it's his, really good. His work is gorgeous. I don't know why he doesn't do more work. Procopio's uh, work is beautiful. He did uh, It Rhymes with Lust, which right. is yes. one of the right. first yes. graphic novels and should have been bigger than it was. Arnold Drake. Yeah, uh, Arnold Drake, and they didn't have any. They didn't know how to market. No, nope, no. Nope. It, it's it's kind of like it's what happened to to so many transcendent and revolutionary products that get lost in the shuffle because no one knows how to sell the product. Right. What not to show? Not. One, uh, one other question I had for you is real quickly. So. The Alex Toth story never happened, right? No. No. Like, he never held no. a publisher no. out of a window. No. no, the reason you know it ever happened is that everybody's got a different version of who it was and when. Okay. It's just nonsense. But it is so engraved into the mythos that it had to be told. Right. And I and, and the way I told it, I'm very proud of. Right. And that I, and that I made it a joke about about Bob Rose and and uh, and, and, and Brian O'Callaghan. Brian that, Callahan. And honestly, that is why I never want to know who these people are in Hey Kids comics because yeah, I right. love the fact look, that you look, can. It's obvious. It's obvious that Gil is Ray. Yes. It's obvious that Sid Mitchell is Jack Kirby. Bob Rose is, is Stan Lee. Morris Adelstein is, is Martin Goodman. Uh, and, and, and and, and Jess Mayberg is, is obviously Kaniger. Okay. You know, um, and and Mil Milt Konigsberg is a cross between, between, between um, Mort Weisinger and, and Julie Schwartz. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, but there, there's there's a lot of crossovers, and with, and the new the new volume, the new volume will lose me friends. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, well, it'll gain you some friends. No, yeah. I love no, well, <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, no. There are people who can never speak to me again, or, or will confront me in person if they have any balls um, about what I've done in the third, in the third volume. Yeah, Ridiculous. I'm serious. I'm, I, the next couple issues are, are bangers. Adam issue, bombs. Issue four. <laughs> when I posted a couple of pages from issue four, and Mike Gold's reaction was, "Uh oh." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and it's six again, right? It's going to be six. Yeah. So what's what's out? What's in the pipe after that? Uh, I'm right now. I'm, I'm 20 pages into the into a 96 page breakdown, uh, adapting a the fifth of a series of novels that were published in the, in the mid 50 mid 60s to the late to the early 70s, back when there was public transportation and, and people read more. Um, for called Fargo. They're quasi westerns, but they're actually rip snorting adventure stories. There, imagine if Alistair McLean was writing about an American hero. In the, in the early part of the 20th century. They take place, um, the hero is a, a veteran of Roosevelt's Rough Riders who's a confidant of Teddy Roosevelt after his presidency. Um, he's a, a rascal, um, you know, look, an ex-boxer, uh, gunman, gunslinger, and um, and it's a lot of fun. I'm yeah. 20, I mean, I've got it all broken down, page page broken down, now I'm, and now I'm in panel breakdown mode. So I did 20 pages on the train. So yeah, that actually that that, that brings me to one question. We I almost forget that we wanted to ask you: is, What's like it? What, an average? What's what's a typical day like? You know, I know that you don't do full page art anymore. We just mentioned. I don't that, work. I don't work time. I work mission. Okay. Um, I, I generally lay my work plan out in such a way that this must be done today. Okay. And um, I mean for. For example, I get home on Tuesday, and um, and on Tuesday I will drive over to my assistant's place and pick up the 28 pages of panel of, of ink panel borders for issue six of Hey Kids Comics. I work, no matter what I do on the page, I always work into ink panel borders. Um, he's got he has the thumbnails, he's inked the panel borders, they're ready to go. So I'll pick them up as early as possible. I probably won't get much done on Tuesday, but on Wednesday I will start. I'll, I'll take pages one through 12 because the last four pages. 
are a coda. Um, so it's 1 through 12, then 12, then 13 through 24, and then I'll work 20, 25 through 28. It's three separate elements. And uh, he has, my assistant also has all the fake comic book covers that we're doing. He's got those set up and some BGs. And Ken has has the builds that he needs to do. There are things that he has to build CGI that will right. be available to me. Uh, so I'll start penciling on, t- on Wednesday morning in all likelihood. So I'll, I'll pencil Some one of those covers are tremendous. I love the one with the kid that's wearing the Superman cape and he's placed down in the middle of his lawn. <laughs> I like, I like, it's an iconic image. It right? is. You know? I like the one we with all the, tried the, it at one point, whether it was a tree or a... I mean, that's all Don Cameron. I mean, I basically gave Don Ruff comps. I took that photograph. That's my grandson. Okay. Uh, my, my other grandson. And um, and, it, and he was he was game. He was a sport. I said, do you want to put a towel under your face? And he said, no, I'll do it. He was right face down there, you know. Don, Don, added, Don literally, we, we, we couldn't find a pair of high tops for him. So Don, Don photoshopped the high tops. And he was, okay. he was wearing more much modern sneakers. Right. Luckily, he's got a, got a marine haircut, so it works well, pretty good. Yeah, it works. And, and, and Don added the CG, those, the, the, the gutters that are lying across his ankles are CGI. They, he added them in. Wait till you see the cover of issues five and six. Yeah, I like the refrigerator box of comics. That, 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 that was that's touching. real. That was that's, touching, yeah. That's real, you know. Um, well, I mean, that's... I'm old, that's, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, think I, I think I've bent your ear long enough. Um, I warned you I was going to. Okay. The, uh, but uh, I appreciate it, as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, and now, Mikey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. And now I'm going to see if I can get you doing a song. All right. I'm going to videotape you, if you don't <laughs> okay. mind. All right, no And uh, Because you do love musical theater, and you, and you, and you have a, you had a lovely singing voice. <laughs> so... If they asked me, I could write a book About the way you walk and whisper and look I could write a preface on how we met So the world would never forget And the simple secret of the plot Is just to tell them that I love you a lot And the world discovers as my book ends How to make two lovers of friends And I thank you Thank you, Howard. Thank you so much. Oh, I was just channeling my high school musical experience there. <laughs> Luck be a lady tonight. I know, right? I, I, I have to ask the next time we see Howard whether or not he actually did musical theater at some point or wanted to do musical theater or something because, man, he's got the chops. I won't lie. Like, that was... That was awesome. And I don't know any other podcast that you're going to kind of get that stuff on, except for the last Comic Shop podcast. And we hope that you are sticking around for more of our fantastic interviews. And you can make sure that you never miss any of them by rate, reviewing, and subscribing over at our website, www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. It's a terrific place where you can find all of these episodes, past and present, where we've done terrific interviews with a whole slew of folks, whether it was Mark Russell or Roy Thomas or Dennis Culver or Kelly Thompson or Russ Braun. Any of the Pat Olive interviews. This year, last year, the Howard Jake interviews. You had this one. We have old ones. There's all kinds of interviews out there. So make sure that you're uh, checking all of them out. They're all evergreen and they're out there on our website, www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. Yes, that's right. You want to go there. That is the home base. Uh, We've got links to this week's social media of the month type thing. Is it Twitter? Is it X? Is it who knows what it's going to be next week? We're somewhere on the big World Wide Web. You can find us. We also have links to a merch store, T-shirts, tote bags, 
coffee mugs, all sorts of gifts that you might want for your comic-loving friends or fans. Something to wear uh, next time you make it out to Broadway. Yeah, absolutely. Something that J.A. can wear so he can take off that Conan shirt. Oh, God! It is a Conan the Barbarian shirt. It's supposed to smell like that. He's a barbarian. (laughs) Oh, man. But make sure that you're sticking around next week. We won't have interviews, but we will have a review of Longshot. Yes, the six-part miniseries featuring recent addition to the Eisner Hall of Fame and Nascenti. Yay! As well as Art Adams. I mean, I, yeah. I think Art can't in. beat Art Adams. He's wonderful. So that'll be on next week's show. And until then, I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by Jay Scott and Chad Smith. And we hope that you stay safe, stay going to cons, because there are lots of great ones out there and fantastic people to meet. And remember that an email's least favorite food is always spam. No, that's terrible. That's They're terrible. all terrible. <laughs> Comic Shop was a 2023 Black Angus production.